0: Thank you for joining us. Our goal at Church of the Rock is to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To learn more about us, please check out our website at churchoftherock.ca or stay connected with our free app available for Apple and Android devices. All right, and we want to welcome all of those who are joining us online right now across the city, around the nation, around the world. We're so grateful you could join us here. And we're allowed 100 people in the room, so we have 100 people in the room. So I'll be talking to you, I'll be talking to you, and we're going to be having a good time. So let's get right down to business. I am carrying on in the series I began a few weeks ago called A Brave New World. And it's based on the book by the same name, by Aldous Huxley, written in 1932. And he predicted a world... That there would be people that would be genetically engineered, socially indoctrinated, and pharmaceutically anesthetized. And I've been suggesting to you that we have arrived at his world way ahead of schedule. If you go and read the book, you'll recognize that the time frame in our, in our estimation is 2540 AD. But in the book, that's not what they use. In the book, it's 632 AF. You say, what's that talking about? Well, it's talking about 632 after Ford, referring to Henry Ford. And in the book, Brave New World, Henry Ford is their patriarch. Because he was the one who developed and invented mass production and mass consumption, which their whole world was based on. And they revered him almost like a deity. In fact, so much so, and of course, Huxley's doing this totally tongue-in-cheek. But they referred to him, instead of our Lord, they referred to him as our Ford. And uh, if you you were talking about someone, you wouldn't use the word godliness, that you would say they had fordliness. And there was a symbol, it wasn't exactly a religious symbol, but it was a symbol of their culture. And this is really interesting to me, you know he's playing with, messing with our heads. Uh, Their symbol was the cross with the top cut off, which was the T, which was after the model T, Henry T. Ford. Here it is. Thank Ford. And uh, just obviously he's, he's playing with us a little bit, making a point. And it's sort of interesting to me because I feel like we have a Henry Ford today and he is a similar symbol. I'll throw it up on the screen. You can kind of figure out who I'm talking about. All right, so I'm going to give you my little caveat, my little warning that I've been giving you at the beginning of every one of these messages because this is not a typical series. This is not the kind of thing you would generally hear on a Sunday morning, but I'm giving it to you to provoke you. That's my intention. I'm not necessarily trying to get you to be comfortable. I'm trying to aggravate you just a little bit. And the whole point of this is I'm trying to get you to look critically at your world and to get you thinking and to get you talking. And I would encourage you to find people to have a conversation. Conversation with, just don't find me because I can't interact with all of you on this subject. So, that's my warning. Let's jump into this. So, week one, we talked uh, about social stratification and how the people of the Brave New World were divided into different classes of people, which produced this kind of discrimination between those groups. And of course, week one, I talked about the fact that we have that today and that we have different classes of people and we've fallen into this tribalism. And as a result, we have this identity politics. And so, we went into that week one. Week two, we talked about freedom of speech that freedom of speech is worth the risk. And as far as Christians are concerned, freedom of speech is so important to what we do. Well, this week, my message is all about social indoctrination. And uh, this one is really going to bend you. I promise you that. When you look at Brave Brave New World, uh, they were all socially indoctrinated to the point where they all looked the same, dressed the same, thought the same, spoke the same, acted the same, and that is actually what our world tries to do. It tries to conform us. Interesting story that the book, as I said, was written in 1932. In 1958, Huxley wrote another book called Brave New World Revisited. And it actually wasn't a novel. It was actually a nonfiction. And it was to look at, look back. So it's 1958, 26 years after he published the book. And he wanted to know, he was asking this question. Are we moving faster or further towards the Brave New World or not? And, of course, his conclusion was that we were moving at a much higher rate than he ever imagined. And he had the benefit of the fact that the world between 1932 and 1958, you all know this, had gone through a major world war and one of the great, great atrocities of all time being Nazi Germany. And, of course, it was hard for him not to look at the indoctrinational uh, concepts of Hitler uh, during, during the Third Reich. And he pointed out a lot of things in this book, Brave New World, Revisited. But one of the things that really caught his imagination was the fact that Hitler actually understood and used indoctrination techniques. And one of the things you try to do is try to create uniformity. And so he loved it when his population actually literally wore uniforms because then you're all the same. So the officers wore uniforms, the soldiers wore uniforms. If you know anything about Hitler youth, they even wore. Kids walked around on the streets wearing uniforms. And you can, a great movie on it called Jojo Rabbit, if you've ever seen it. And one of the things that Huxley points out that was fascinating to me and I'd never thought about was the fact that he caused his soldiers, required his soldiers, to march back and forth in unison all day long. From point A to point B. From B to A. From A back to B again. And he just made them go back and forth, back and forth, doing this ridiculous thing called the goose step. And here's a picture of it. You've probably all seen it. There's all kinds of photographs of these men, all in order, all in line. Now remember, in the 1800s, there was a military purpose for the goose step and walking in order like that in the 20th century. It was completely unnecessary, except this is what he was doing. He was breaking down the individual will and trying to create human uniformity and conformity, which he succeeded at. Interesting, there are still people that do the goose step, even to this day, countries like China, North Korea, Russia, John Cleese, (laughs) and Mr. Bean. And, And so when you look at this, you begin to realize that this has been going on from time immemorial. So my message today is entitled, The Mob is Almost Always Wrong. And what we're going to do is we're not going to look at so much about at mobs by the fact that, you know, most of you have probably never been part of a mob, but we're all part of a mob mentality. And so that's what I'm talking about. When I look at the age we're living in now, I think we're living in the decade of the mob. You turn on the television any night of the week and you will see a mob somewhere in the world doing something ruinous, doing something violent, doing something vandalous. And you will see them in Canada. You look and see what's happening with some of the lockdown stuff. Even in our own nation, we have mobs taking place in various cities with all of the kind of things that happen. And a lot of us, we would think that we are above the mob mentality. And what I'm going to try to convince you of today is that none of us are above the mob mentality. Every one of us has the ability to fall into it. So I'm gonna give you a fantastic example from 2008, Leeds University. They wanted to do a bit of a test, a research project, on the power of suggestion or a mob mentality. They had a big auditorium like this. Of course, these universities, they always use the university students as their subjects, right? Big, empty auditorium, no chairs like this. And they sent different sizes of groups into this room and they asked them to just go walk around. Just go walk around in the room for 20 minutes. But what they did was they told a very small group of people specifically to walk in an actual pattern. So those people went and they went in the pattern. Within a few minutes, you ready for this? Every single person in the room was walking in the same pattern. Why is that? Because we all have the weakness to fall into the power of suggestion. We all can end up into what I'm calling today the mob mentality. It, here's a fascinating I think it's a very funny real life story that happened. So this missionary he went to to Venezuela. He was about to start there. He had not yet learned the language of Spanish, but he went anyway. One of the first things he decided to do was to go to a church service and to see what they were all doing in the churches down in this city in Venezuela. Now, he didn't know what to do because he didn't understand the language. So he decided, he picked a person across the aisle from him, a man, and he decided whatever that man did, he was going to do. So if that man sat down, he was going to sit down. If that man stood up, he was going to stand up. If that man folded his hands to pray, he was going to fold his hands to pray. So he managed to get through the service pretty well until the very, very, and he was just mimicking everything the other man did. But at the end of the service, the pastor said something. He had no idea what he had said because it was in Spanish. The man stood up, so he stood up, only to discover that only two of them were standing in the whole room. And the whole crowd, the congregation, gasped together. He did not know what had happened. At the end of the service, the pastor came up to him and said, Señor, you don't speak Spanish, correct? Correct. And he said, no, how did you know? He said, I announced that the Acostas had a brand new baby girl and would the proud father please stand up? (laughs) We all are more susceptible than we think. So here what we're going to do is we're going to look at our text today, which is Exodus chapter 3, and uh, uh, this is chapter 32, rather. And uh, in this story, most of you know it, that Moses, he leads the children of Israel out of Egypt, across the Red Sea on dry ground. There's miracle after miracle after miracle that takes place. You all know that. Now they've been wandering in the wilderness for several months. They arrive at a place called Mount Sinai. Moses goes up to Mount Sinai to hang out, right? No, he went up there to commune with God to get what? The Ten Commandments. God wrote them literally with his finger on the tablets of stone. He was gone. Who remembers how many days? 40 days. He's up there for 40 days. So that's where we're picking up this story. Just so you know where Moses is because he's not there. Here's the story. Verse 1, Exodus chapter 32. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come make us God's That shall go before us, for as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, break off golden earrings which are in your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Then they said, this is our God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Then they rose up early the next day, offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, go get down for your people whom you brought out out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves i love this story i love the fact that god doesn't even take credit for these people he says your people that you, he doesn't even want them god doesn't because they've corrupted themselves and i don't want you to miss what has happened here this has happened so fast and moses has done this incredible job of leading them and did all of these miracles and in only 40 days they lost their way and fell into the mob mentality and here's what i want to point out to you aaron is moses brother but aaron is not leading them they are leading aaron am i right about that Yeah, that's exactly what is going on in this picture. And see, there's a big difference between a crowd and a mob. See, a crowd has a leader. And so when the crowd was with Moses, Moses was leading the crowd. Joshua leads the crowd into the promised land. Jesus led the crowd in the land of Galilee. So as long as there's a leader involved, but what happens when the leader is taken out, the crowd can turn to a mob, which is exactly what happened here. The leader was gone. The crowd turned into a mob and the crowd or the mob rather turned against the leader. Same thing happened with Jesus, by the way. It was the mob that crucified him, crying out, crucify him. Him, crucify him crucify him so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at four things you probably don't think they apply to you they actually do and here's what they are the mob is almost always wrong number 1 the mob can only feed emotion number 2 the mob does not heed the past number 3 the mob can never lead to the truth and number 4 the mob can only breed conformity so the first point is this is that the mob can only feed emotion You see, that's what was going on in this moment at the base of Mount Sinai is reason had been dispensed of and they had been caught up in fear and emotion. So I want to tell you a little story about this. So those of you that are football fans will remember this. It was February 4th, uh, 2018, Super Bowl Sunday. We had the Philadelphia Eagles playing the New England Patriots. And of course, for the first time in franchise history, the Philadelphia Eagles won the Super Bowl. So the city went nuts, as you do, just like Winnipeg did when we won the Grey Cup. The city went nuts. The fans poured into the streets of downtown Philadelphia, and the celebration quickly turned into absolute mob and into a riot. These rioters, you've probably seen the pictures, they started climbing light standards, they started tearing down street signs, they started smashing windows and looting, they started overturning cars, they started fires. It turned into a full-blown Right. By the next day, dozens of people were in jail. There was millions of dollars worth of damage. And you look at that and you go, why? And the reason is because the mob can only feed emotion. The mob has no brain. Literally, there is no brain involved because there's no leader. There's no collective. There's no such thing as the collective brain, but there is collective motion. When people get together, you can have this emotional thing that rises up, but there's no actual brain. There's actually no thinking, no thought whatsoever going on. And here's what happens, and they know, they've done lots of research on this, that when people gather together in a mob, what happens is they end up suspending their own personal sense of responsibility. Why do they do that? Why do people give up their individual responsibility in a mob? Because they're no longer doing it. They're just going along with the mob that is doing it. And we've seen it time and time again. And I'm going to give you a powerful example of that. And hopefully it'll make some sense in all this. And if we fast forward three years... We have January 6, 2021. You all know it happened. That was the day that the mob stormed the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. in one of the biggest breaches of democracy in American history. They went completely nuts. They broke windows. They smashed things. By the end of the day, uh, three people were dead. All kinds of people arrested. Uh, the, The level of danger was extraordinary. But let's back it up and talk about how it started. So you have the president of the time, Donald Trump, and he has a crowd. He's actually called the crowd. They're out in front of the White House, and they're there, and he's challenging this whole idea to stop the steal, and he says, we are, he used the word, we are going to march down Pennsylvania Avenue to the Capitol building, and we are going to stop the vote. And he said, I am going to go with you. That's what he said, important point in this. Now, I want us to set aside Whether he is guilty of inciting the riot or not, if it's not my point, I don't care about that right now. So you can have whatever opinion you want on that, that's not where I'm going with this. Here's what I want to point out to you. He pointed the crowd toward the Capitol building. He said he was going with them. Did he go with them? No, he did not. He retreated to the White House to watch it on television and what he allowed to happen was to mob rule, take over that crowd, because now it no longer has a leader. Even though he told them that they were going to peacefully do it. He did say that. It doesn't matter. Because now mob mentality had, had taken over. The mob went down the street. It has no brain. All it has is emotion. It has no leader. It's a headless monster. Nobody really knows what's going to happen. Because a mob is totally and utterly Unpredictable. And so that's exactly what happened. That mob went down that street and that chaos ensued as a result of this. And I think we all know where that story ends, with people dead and the greatest breach of democratic in, in the history of the US. And this is what we discover is that we're all susceptible to the mob mentality. And it's all about emotions. My son went to St. Paul's High School. Some of you know this school. It's a boy's school. It's run by the Jesuits. And I'll never forget what the Jesuit, one of his Jesuit teachers, used to always remind them. He says, the greater number of teenage boys in a confined space, the lower the collective IQ. <laughs> and he used to, my son never remembered that, but I remember that because it's so absolutely true. So the first thing is this, that the mob can only feed emotion. The second thing is that the mob does not heed the past. We look at the story at Mount Sinai, and it's amazing to me that in, in only a few months, They've completely forgotten their past. They completely forgot the fact that God did miracle after miracle after miracle for them while they were in Egypt. Got them out of there. Drowned the entire Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea when he brought the waters in. They get into the promised land. He's bringing water out of the rock. He's making the bitter water sweet. He's bringing them food from wherever. He's taking care of everything he needs. And we have Moses who's only been gone for 40 days. But the mob cannot remember and does not heed the past. And see, the past is the greatest teacher. History is the greatest teacher we have. George Santayana said this. He said, those who fail to learn the lessons of history are doomed to repeat it. And it's something profoundly powerful about the teacher of history. And you know, when I think of the Bible, the Bible is what? It's a historical book. 99% of the Bible is history. Only 1%. The book of Revelation is future. Everything else is the past. And you look at the stuff that God included. Why on earth did God include such dreadful and horrific stories in the Old Testament? He told the good, the bad, and the ugly. Just being honest with you, if I was God, there's stuff in that book I wouldn't have put in there. I would have, I would have, maybe it happened, but I'm going to leave it out. Because it seemed dangerous to leave it in. Because it makes God look bad, makes God people look bad. Why did he leave it in? Because history is our best teacher, and in fact, the mistakes and the failures of history are just as important, maybe more important, than the successes. I found that out personally. I've been doing this almost 40 years, and I have found that people are far more interested in my failures than they are in my successes. I don't get it. Like when I tell you some great story about some wonderful, fantastic thing I did and people go, yeah, that's nice. We'll move on. (laughs) Yet, I tell you about some bonehead mistake I made and everybody cheers. Like it was the greatest thing I ever did. I thought, what is with these people? I'll tell you what. People can relate more to your failures than to your successes and we can learn more from them than oftentimes we can from the successes. So let me tell you a little story about this. My poor mom, here it goes. When I was 11 years old, I wanted to try out for the hockey team. Every, all the kids were trying out for the hockey team. I wanted to try out for the hockey team. I didn't have skates. And so my mother wouldn't buy me hockey skates. She says, what, do, what if you don't make the team? There's no point in me buying you skates. She says, here, use my skates, honest to God truth. She sent me to hockey tryouts in white girls figure skates. And so I show up at the hockey rink in my stupid, her feet were the same size as mine. You get this. These were her skates. I show up for the hockey practice in white woman's figure skates. Question for you. Do you think I made the team? (laughs) Not only only did I not make the team, I've been struggling with my masculinity since that day. (laughs) And, I, and let me tell you something like even further funny about this. So some of you heard that story, because I told that story one, one Sunday. And what happened is this woman came up to me and said, Pastor Mark, I just love it when you tell those stories about your mom. And I said, why is that exactly? Because she says, then I turn to my daughters and I say, see, I'm not so bad. <laughs> <laughs> my point is this, is that that those who fail to learn the lessons from history are doomed to repeat them. And history is our greatest lesson and greatest teacher, including the failures of the past. So I want you to think I'm really gonna pick on the Americans today, and I'm sorry about that. It's just the way it's gonna be because they're the most dramatic example I can give on pretty much everything I'm gonna say today. But I want you to think about the year 2020 and how the mobs in cities all across America began to try to erase their history. And I'm particularly talking about how they attacked the statues and the monuments to historical figures. They were presidents, they were Confederate leaders, they were people that may have been, uh, you know, slave owners and different things. And they just went after these monuments. And I'll show you some of the pictures of them. I mean, this one here, this is a mob trying to tear down a statue of Andrew Jackson. They had ropes and cables and they were pulling. The police managed to break in and stop them from doing that. But most of the time they weren't successful. This one here is Teddy Roosevelt. He's supposed to be one of the good guys, right? And his statue is completely trashed. You see poor Christopher Columbus. He just took it on the chin in 2020. Uh, I mean, well, in this case, it was the head. He was beheaded. He was defaced. He was defamed. He was pulled down, oftentimes in broad daylight. Oftentimes, the cops stood by. Look at, they're dumping him into the river, for goodness sakes. And you see the mob there. These gals, why they're stomping on Christopher Columbus's head is beyond me. And I'm thinking to myself, do they honestly think that they can erase history by tearing down these statues? And here's the point I want to make about this. This is part of their history, whether they like it or not, good or bad, it's their history. And if it weren't for Columbus, none of them would be there. I'm wondering if they've actually thought about that fact. And the fact that they're trying to erase this part of their history, and maybe, these, maybe some of these statues are egregious. I don't know. Who am I to say? But there are democratic ways of dealing with it. But having a mob tear down a statue at public property and throw it into the river, there's something wrong with that picture. And I think probably everybody in this room ag- agrees with that. And the, the, the whole issue here is that you can't erase history. And th- I wonder, this is my thought about this. So what are they going to do? So they tear down this statue of Christopher Columbus, and then they return to their city of Columbus, Ohio, or Columbus, Indiana, or Columbus, Illinois, or Columbus, Michigan, or Columbus, Wisconsin, or Columbus, Minnesota, or Columbus, South Dakota, or Columbus, Nebraska, or Columbus, Kansas, and I'm not even out of the Midwest yet. There are 54 cities in the U.S. named Columbus. If you work in the capital, it's called the District of Columbia. Or maybe you went to Colombian University. And I just think to myself, where's this all going to end? Where's this all going to stop? And if you don't like your history, I would like to turn that on your head, that maybe it's your history that you don't like and you're not proud of that you need to remember. See, in Canada, we have this thing called Remembrance Day every November. We all know about it. And we have a slogan or a motto, and it goes like this, and I know you know all that, lest we Lest we forget. Why do we say lest we forget? Because we never want to forget the atrocities of war and what got us to this place. And I hope to God that we never forget Adolf Hitler or Mussolini or Joseph Stalin or, uh, you know, Saddam Hussein or any one of these tyrants of the past. Because if we forget the lessons of history, we are condemned to repeat them. And so that's why it's so important for us to remember from whence we came and to remember these things and these pieces of our history. And I think this whole thing of trying to erase the past is, is kind of got away. And the mob tries to do that. I don't know why, they just do. And we look at the areas that it's affected in life. And, and here's like a really innocuous example that's going to rile you up, but I'm going to give it anyway Dr. Seuss. So, Dr. Seuss, probably many of you have followed this story. Dr. Seuss Enterprises, they own the rights to Dr. Seuss material. They have taken seven books out of publication. Here's what I would say, that they have a right to do whatever they want. They own the rights. They can sell them or not sell them, publish them or not publish them. That's their business. But the reason was they thought that these seven books had things that would be considered in today's day and world culturally inappropriate. Maybe they are, maybe they're not. So I'm saying they had the right to do that. But here's the problem. You get the snowball effect. And so, what happened is the library started pulling these books. It started burning and destroying these books. Booksellers started pulling them off their shelves. And all of a sudden, there's this, gr- this great wave of, of, of anger against Dr. Seuss, the most beloved of all children's writers. For goodness sakes, it's hard to believe that Dr. Seuss had become all of a sudden this villain. In fact, you can go online, you can read articles claiming that Dr. Seuss, at his heart and at his core, was a racist. I'm thinking, Seriously, have they never read The Sneetches? You know The Sneetches, don't you? The Sneetches is one of his greatest books. It's all about the Sneetches who have stars on their bellies and those who don't have stars on their bellies. And the whole point of this book is that they're both Sneetches on the inside and whether they have a star or don't have their star, they're still a Sneetch, and they need to treat everyone equally. It's a book on anti-discrimination and anti-racism. And then, of course, you have... Uh, You know, the Lorax, which of course is is just as interesting because it's all about environmentalism. I don't know if there's a children's writer who is more conscientious than Dr. Seuss. So here's the deal. So your kids can't read Dr. Seuss, but they can sit in their bedroom playing Grand Theft Auto where they steal cars, shoot cops, do drugs, and run with prostitutes. They can turn on the television any night of the week and they can hear the F-bomb, they can see nudity, acts of sexuality, or zombies biting the heads off of people with blood and guts spewing everywhere. But God forbid if they read Dr. Seuss. Something wrong with this world, people. So let, now that I'm like poking at you and, and getting silly, let me, let me name one more. Poor Mr. Potato Head. You've been following this story? Poor Mr. Potato Head, he got neutered. Uh, he used to be Mr. Potato Head, but he's lost the honorific Mr. and he's just Potato Head. At least the toy is called that. And you know, in Hasbro's defense, they wanted to be more inclusive. In Hasbro's defense, I'm going to give them this one because I know for a fact that potatoes are actually gender neutral. So I'm I'm going to give them that one. All I want from them is a bit of consistency. So if you're going to change him from Mr. Potato Head to Potato Head, then you need to change your name from Hasbro. You've got to take the bro out. It just doesn't work for me. It's got to be has or has sib. But has bro, that offends me on a deep level. You know I'm playing with you, right? But I think where's this all going to go? Where's this inane in, in behavior going to go? When's it going to stop? What are we going to do if we lose Mr. Clean? How are you going to clean your bathroom? What are you going to do? What are you going to do if we lose Mr. Potato or Mr. Head? right? He'll always be Mr. Peanut Head to me. Where are you going to eat if we lose Mr. Sub? Where are you going to get your oil change if you lose Mr. Lube? And God help us if we lose Mr. Bean, right? <laughs> All right, so, the, so the, you get my point. So the first thing here is the, the mob can only feed emotion. The mob does not heed the past. And the third thing is this, that the mob cannot actually lead to the truth. And the fascinating thing about, about the mob is the mob, as I said, it has no brain, so it's not gonna actually ever lead you to the truth whatsoever, so I want to tell you about a little experiment that happened. Uh, psychiatrist uh, in 1951, his name was Solomon Arch Ash. rather, And uh, he had a group of students. It's always students. That's what you use. And he had them in this room. And he put the, this picture up on the wall, on the board. And it was a target line. And there was three options. And the simple question was this. Which one of the A, B, or C lines is equivalent, same height as the target line? Now, which one is it? but <laughs> you got it wrong okay, it's, it's C just in case you're wondering it's C, and so here's what they did he, he would bring them in one by one into this room, but there's a group of seven other people in front of them, and they'd say which one is the same length and they all pointed to the shortest line And they'd say, it's A, it's A, it's A. And so when it got to the one, you know, the the pansy in this, uh, and they would say, which one is it? And 75%, even though they knew that it was a different line, they pointed to the shortest line, suspending their own good judgment. And the point of that is that is how easily we conform to society. 75%. We're not willing to go against the mob and the will of the the majority. And that's how our world works. And that's sort of what's wrong and broken about our work. And that's why God says this. It's Romans chapter 12, verse 2. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God. He says, do not be conformed to this world. It's written in the present, passive, imperative, and should be read like this. Stop being conformed to the world. He's saying you're already doing it and you need to stop being conformed to this world. And I think if we think about this, if we really get honest with ourselves, most of us are far more susceptible to conforming to our world than we're willing to admit. So I'm going to give you a little bit of an example on this. I want to talk about the world of politics. Again, I need to use the American example primarily because it's so divided and such an obvious one. It's just more drama than anywhere else in the world at the moment. if, if you look at these graphs, I want to show you this first graph. This is, I showed you this last week, public opinion. Typically, public opinion, most people are somewhere in the middle. There's the outliers, the strong disagree, the strong agree. Most people land somewhere in the, in the middle, depending on what the issue is. When you look at the world politics and you divide that between left and right, all of a sudden, these two bubbles move apart because they actually view things a little bit differently, it doesn't, it's probably, that's about right, that graph there, but it feels like this next one. It feels like they're miles apart. And there's something going on in the world of politics where people are more divided today than I think they have ever been since the Civil War in the U.S. And there's probably a whole bunch of reasons, but I want to give you one kind of obvious reason, at least I think it is, and you can decide for yourself whether I'm right or wrong. And that has to do with cable news. Cable news, the 24-hour news cycle, which I would argue is no longer news. And when I look at K- American cable news, I think what it is is political, partisan commentary. I don't think it's news at all. I think they foregone news a very long time ago. So I'm going to pick on two. Sorry about that. I'm going to do it. And uh, here, here's what they are. I'm going to talk about... Let's go over here. I'm going to talk about CNN for a moment. So for four years, CNN went on day after day, hour after hour, minute after minute, thrashing the elected president of the United States. They called him a liar, a racist, a bigot, a homophobe, a xenophobe, every other name. Then they had guest after guest after guest on who agreed with that same position. What they created, whether they realize it or know it or not, is they created an echo chamber. Where what happens is that the the commentary just all revolves around the same thing. Everybody takes more or less the same position. If you, as a viewer, watch that exclusively, it wouldn't take very long for you to begin to imbibe that same exact position politically. Click the channel. You go over to Fox News here. And for four years, Fox News did exactly the opposite and extolled the virtues of the same president and called the other news media, called CNN fake news, called them liars. They hurled insults and called each other names. I'm telling you, people, that is not news. When you're insulting people and insulting leaders and insulting one another. And, of course, they did the same thing. They paraded uh, guest after guest after guest after guest into their same environment In sociological terms, it's called confirmation bias. You're not actually looking for the truth. You're looking for someone to agree with the position you already hold. We all have a confirmation bias. You, me, everybody. It's sort of part of human nature. But what happens is we've produced or saw produce two very distinct and polarized echo chambers. And then we're stuck, you and me, and we're going, how do I know what to believe? Because did not the scripture say, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free? I want to know the truth, don't you? People want to know the truth. I don't want people to tell me what I already know. I want to know, how do I get to that place where I actually learn the truth about something? So I'm going to give you a little bit of a a model of that, a paradigm of that. Something probably you've never seen before. So I'm going to throw this up. First of all, I'm going to talk about electricity. And then I'm going somewhere with this. It's an important illustration. So if you know something about electricity, there's three factors that work together. You've got volts, you've got ohms, you've got amps. The volts is, in, in electrical terms, is the pressure. It's what's pushing this thing from behind. You've got a 12 volt battery, it's pushing 12 volts through. Ohms is the resistance. Everything has resistance. Wire has resistance. Motors have resistance. Electronics have resistance. Sometimes they actually literally have resistors in them. And what it does is it squeezes that down. And out from the other side comes the amps, which is the current. And so that is how electricity functions. Now, I don't want to spend any more time on that. I want to jump jump to the next one. And this is, I've taken that diagram and I've said, here's how it works in the world of thought. What we have, the pressure on us, is the information. And we have this huge conduit of information today. You go on, on the internet, for example, all of the world's knowledge, or just about all of it, is there. This is a compendium of human knowledge that has been concentrated into one place for every man, woman, and child to access. But here's the question. How do you know what's true or not? How do you separate the fact from the fiction? It's very difficult. Because what we want to get to is the truth. Now, the way you get to the truth, and here's my theory on this, is that we knew two things that are the resistance. And those two things are, first of all, the scripture, the word of God, because he said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. If you abide in my word, my word abides in you. So we start with that. But the second thing is that we need a big dose of skepticism. You see, the problem is we just can't believe everything. And there's a certain value in having a bit of skepticism, a dose of skepticism, and we look at something and say, I am not going to believe that right off the hop. I need to know, I need to measure that, I need to bring it through the resistor of the word of God and a little skepticism to determine whether this is true or not. Which is exactly what the Bereans did. Do you remember? When Paul reached Berea, I talked to you about this last week, he got to that city, it says the Bereans were more fair-minded men And they listened to Paul and they searched the scriptures diligently to see if these things were so. Did you catch that? They didn't just accept it. They didn't just go, okay, that's it. I accept it. I get it. What they did was they said, I don't know if you're telling me the truth or not. So I'm going to go and I'm going to check out the scriptures and decide for myself. You see, I think that that's what's so important. And probably most of you know this, that I'm a word guy. I believe that the word of God is the infallible, trustworthy, inerrant word of God. So you know I will always circle back to the word of God. But if you really know me, you will know that I am one giant skeptic. I almost don't believe anything I hear the first time I hear it. I mean, I am the worst. I pretty much look at the world like this. If everybody believes it, it's probably not right kind of look at stuff that way. And I want to just illustrate this with something about how we do things around here, why people even tune into our program. You know that our, our, our show, Church of the Rock, is the most watched religious show in Canada. Why is that? It's not because we're the biggest church in Canada. We are not. It's not because I'm the smartest guy in, in the country. We all know that's not true. It's not because I'm the best looking. Actually, I am the best looking, so maybe that's a poor example. There's no reason for false modesty, right? Why is it that people tune in? I'll tell you why they tune in. Because I don't, and we don't, I'm not the only one, we don't just parrot what the world has to say. We actually challenge with a little bit of skepticism. We actually challenge the presuppositions of our world with some independent thought and some critical thinking. And we go, you know what, maybe you shouldn't believe everything you hear. Because we live in this world where the Bible tells us that it's going to deceive us. And so therefore, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so week after week, we go on air. And I don't care if everybody believes me. I've told you that before. If you don't agree with me, I don't care. I just want to get you thinking. And most of the time, I don't actually tell people what to believe. I challenge them this, with this question. Why do you believe what you believe? And how many times in a message will I say, why this, why this, why this, why this? I ask these questions. I provoke your thought. And I think that's the key. That's the journey that we all need to get on, that we ask the hard questions and we start talking about some stuff that people are afraid to talk about. And all this stuff I've talked about today, preachers won't talk about it today. And we need to be talking about it because our world is going a direction and we need to figure out which one. Final thing I want to say, and I'll just say this real, real quick, is this. The last thing is that the mob can only breed conformity I've said it several times today that you should not be conformed to this world why would the scripture say that except for the fact that the world is trying to conform you it's trying to squeeze you into a mold it's trying to socially indoctrinate you and of course we are told that we are nothing more than a grain of sand in the collective consciousness well I got news for you we are a lot more than that We are individuals at our core. Yes, you are part of a family. Yes, you are part of a community. Yes, you are part of a church. You might be part of a racial or a cultural group. But do you know who you are at your core? You are an individual uniquely made by the hand of God. Go read Psalm 139 where he tells you that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. It says he formed your inward parts and covered you while you were in your mother's womb. Before you were still even born, he says, I have counted your days and I know my thoughts for you, which, are you ready for this? Are more than all the grains of sand of the sea. You are not a grain of sand. You were individually created in the image of God. You are his beloved child in which he is well pleased. Let's never forget that we are unique. Every one of us, we have a DNA that God has given us that no other human being shares. Why? Because you were individually created in the image of God, not to conform to the world's nature, but to the nature of our God and Father in heaven above. That's who you are. All right, so I want to just speak to the people online and the rest of you in the room. Why don't you stand to your feet? You're probably sick of listening to me rant and probably want to get on your feet and start moving. But I want to talk to those of you online and those in the room here that if you have never invited Christ into your life to be your Lord and Savior, I want to give you an opportunity to do that today because it's so important. He did uniquely make you and he created you for a purpose. But you have to accept what he has done for you when he sent his son into the world to die for your sin. And if you're in this room with every eye closed and head bowed, if you've never made that decision, if you don't know you're on your way to heaven or not, I want to encourage you that today's your day. And if that's you, I want you to slip up your hand. Nobody's looking around. Just take a moment. And for those online, there's a little hand that goes up on your screen. And I want you to click on that hand. And by doing so, you're saying, I'm willing to make that decision. And I'm going to lead you all in prayer together today. Those in the room, those online. And please pray with me, especially if you raise that hand or click that raise hand button. So, Heavenly Father, I thank you for the work of the cross. That though I was a sinner, walking in my own way, conforming to the world, you died on the cross for my sin. You washed it all away. You rose again on the third day. You forever lived to be my Lord. And today I'm a Christian. And I'm on my way to heaven. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Let's give Jesus a shout in the room. Thanks for joining us. We want to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To find resources to grow in your relationship with Christ, go to churchoftherock.ca slash next. You can also join us at one of our campuses, including our interactive online campus at churchoftherock.live. For locations, service times, or to support the ministry of Church of the Rock, please go to churchoftherock.ca or download the Church of the Rock app.